Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Megan Phelps Roper. She's a social activist, public speaker, and author known for her insights into religious extremism. Harry Potter is the most banned book of the 21st century. Firstly, frowned upon by far-right Christian groups for its promotion of witchcraft, the controversy has recently pivoted to the far left, who have concerns that J.K. Rowling is promoting transphobia. The obvious question is, how did one of the most beloved children's authors of all time end up here? Expect to learn the reason behind the widespread backlash and cancellation of J.K. Rowling, whether Rowling is worried about ruining her legacy, how the platforms like 4chan and Tumblr were so pivotal in this movement, just how similar the trans rights movement is to the gay rights movement, Megan's perspective on the What is a Woman documentary, how Megan's upbringing in the Westboro Baptist Church gives her a unique insight on this story, and much more. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Megan Phelps Roper. Harry Potter is one of the most banned books of the 21st century. Why? Well, um, I mean, for a lot of people, it was it was originally Christians. Um, there was a certain, and not all Christians, but there was a certain kind of uh, of Christian who who believed that they were losing the culture in the nineties. Um, and I think I think Harry Potter was it became like it was the biggest target. Um, but there were many things. If you go, if you look back, we we examine this in our show. Um, you look back, there is Sabrina, the teenage witch, and the craft, and uh, charmed and just many, many um, different examples of witchcraft in the culture, and and so Harry Potter became a huge target because because a lot of people really loved it. How many bannings has there been in the last couple of years? Has there been any movement to try and get Harry Potter itself rebanned? There's been some. It's not a lot. It's definitely. I mean, th- I think it was it was a product of that moment in in time. Um, so it's it's definitely not been. Um, I, I don't think it, the same kind of a, a target in the same way that it was in the '90s, for sure. What got you interested in the J.K. Rowling story? Well, if you, I mean, you can't you can't have watched what happened in the summer of 2020. I mean, that for me, that was really the, um, you know, she tweeted in the summer of 2020, June of 2020, and there was this massive backlash. And I think to a lot of people who hadn't been really following the conversation surrounding sex and gender the the nature of that backlash the the heated nature of it um it seemed almost incomprehensible so for me it was, it was i was coming from a place of of ignorance and curiosity um and just really wanting to understand what was going on and the more i started to look into it the more i mean the more it seemed like the nature the fact that the conversation was happening largely on social media was not serving anyone um it was it definitely seemed to me to be inflaming um inflaming that conversation to say the least. Um, and so I ended up writing this letter to JK Rowling to try to find a better way of having that conversation and really just, again, to understand what exactly was going on, what the nature of the controversy was, and why it seemed like everyone involved felt both embattled um, and and just like like so much was at stake. What did the tweet say? Let's say that someone isn't as terminally online as me or you are. Um, okay, so 
which 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 tweet? Um, the 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 original tweet actually was December of 2019, um, and it came across as I mean I think to a lot of people as as quite innocuous. It was something like dress however you dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, sleep with any consenting adult who will have you, live your best life in peace and security, um, but force women out of their jobs for saying that sex is real. Hashtag I stand with Maya. Hashtag this is not a drill. So that was actually J.K. Rowling's first um, tweet that was stepping into this, publicly stepping into this conversation around sex and gender. And like I said, to a lot of people, that that seems like a, a really innocuous thing, even to many, um, and even to many trans people initially, like they read that as as support, but pretty quickly um, that that changed. It was it was how deeply do you want to get into this right now tell us tell us what tell us the uproar that occurred um so it, it was it was seen as you know that she was kind of giving lip service to supporting trans people but really she is a you know what is what is called a turf a trans exclusionary radical feminist um is, thinly is what, veiled right yeah it is it is um somebody who excludes i mean it's, again it's in the term it is you're excluding trans women specifically from your feminism. And so, you know, people like JK Rowling who were concerned, you know, sh she says that she supports trans people and, and she wants them to be be free to live their lives as they will, but that there are essentially that there are places where the interests of um, natal women, as she would say, people who are, you know, biologically or assigned female at birth is the term, um, that their interests conflict with um, the interests of trans women. So, and, you know, we, in, in the series, we identify, we basically split it up into three categories, um, women's sports, women only spaces, and then youth transition. Those are, you know, the concerns of somebody like JK Rowling. Um, and, and part of the reason, I mean, JK Rowling herself and her story are fascinating and they, you know, that was, um, that was, it's a big part of the series, but part of the reason that Rowling is interesting too is that and and why it's worth digging into her views is that uh, her views are shared by a lot of people um and so it's it's worth wrestling with those views just for that reason i can't imagine how many letters jk rowling gets whether it be from a very enthusiastic 11 year old or a very irate trans activist or a well-meaning journalist investigative reporter that wants to find out her views on something why did she reply to you? Um, well, she said that she had read my book, um, Unfollow, which kind of chronicles my upbringing in the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, I, I've basically for the, it's been a little over 10 years since I left Westboro. This um, very, you know, it, it's seen as kind of a cult um, is, is what a lot of people call it. Um, it's largely my family. And, and the short version is I left, um, I left the church and there thereby lost my family a little over 10 years ago. And in that time, I've talked about how um, it was conversations with outsiders, civil discourse, you know, people who took the time to understand where I was coming from um, and to essentially help me find, you know, to, to sort of build a bridge from where I was to to where they were um, and to find my way out of that, um, that kind of very radical hardline um, paradigm, ideological paradigm. Um, so I, you know, in spending that time and, and I, I don't, I don't demonize my family. I, I very clearly, you know, I've disavowed, you know, the things that we did and, and which I think 
were very harmful. It could be extremely cruel and destructive. Um, but I don't demonize them because I, I understand that basically everybody there was born there. They were born into this and, and sort of indoctrinated into it. And so, I mean, I think I've made a very, you know, um, you know, public in a very public way talked about the nature, the, the importance of, of that kind of conversation and, and that I was interested in trying to find that kind of a space for that kind of conversation in this public conflict on sex and gender. Right. So that is what forms the basis for your passion around this. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. It's interesting to consider, uh, you know, you being a part of a movement a while ago that would have seen JK Rowling and perhaps some of her work as a dangerous influence on the youth. And there is now a new movement that sees JK Rowling as a dangerous influence on a different portion of the youth, which is the witch trials of JK Rowling, this sort of multi-headed sort of, not a joke, but a lot of references going on in one title, I suppose. Okay. So you, you, you said, yeah. Well, I was, was going to say, like, there, there's another way to read the title as well, because, you know, that was, the I think, the original, you know, those those parallels was the original reason for the title. Um, and then the more we looked into it, the more we realized, oh, my God, like, we can't call it that, you know, people are going to be really angry. Like, this is, it's already, it, the conversation is already extremely inflamed. We don't want to add to that. But then we realized, you know, pretty quickly, people on all sides of that conversation use the language of witch hunts and witch trials. Like, they see themselves... So some people see Rowling as the victim of a witch hunt, and some people see her as the prosecutor of one. They think that she is prosecuting or persecuting this this uh, very small minority of people who are already the target of a lot of other people. And so how, why why would she add to that, essentially? So the, the title is, you're right, it's extremely multi-layered, much more complicated, I think, than a lot of people give it credit for. You send J.K. Rowling a letter. Surprisingly, she responds and says, come and see me. Talk to me about what it's like to go and sit down with J.K. Rowling. I imagine that the number of in- interview requests, especially for this kind of a topic, must have gone through the roof. And you are just some lady who's got a very extraordinary <laughs> origin story, but in, in the nicest way possible, like just some lady that wants to go and some sit rando. down, and have, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and have a, and have a conversation. You know, like what what's the trip to go and see her like? What's she like in person? And and, and what did that feel like to to actually do it? Um. It, so. I actually had never inter- conducted an interview before I sat down with her a little over a year ago now. Um, and I was, I was really anxious. I mean, it, like luckily, a few, I mean, a few things. First, it was more akin to a conversation than an interview, which was really helpful for me personally. Um, but secondly, I think, you know, she has a reputation of being extremely, you know, kind of you know, controlling and like wants to control the conversation, things like that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff in the media about that. And I had read all those things and I had, you know, watched um, and listened to a lot of interviews that she'd given. Um, and I was, I, I was really nervous for a lot of reasons. And I mean, I mean, I'm really grateful for the fact that she was incredibly kind, generous, warm, very easy to talk to. There was nothing, there were no ground rules. There wasn't anything like, you know, you can't ask about this. And you know, when I very first started asking those, you know, questions, I, I, again, I had the impression that she didn't want to go back to the early days, you know, the early nineties, you know, when she's writing Harry Potter and, um, you know, she had alluded in her, um, in the, an essay that she wrote in June of 2020, um, to her history as a survivor of domestic abuse. And she hadn't really given details about those things. And, and again, I just got the impression that she didn't want to talk about them. And, but almost immediately, I think I got maybe half a question 
out and she just completely opened up and and you know i think it just spoke to the fact that she was really ready to talk about all those things um and so yeah i i feel like i got i got very lucky i mean she she just was a very easy person to talk to and and very warm and, and open with me for sure having spent a good bit of time with her, was it nine hours in total mm-hmm. yeah so large chunk of time more than any of us are going to spend with jk rowling what have you come to believe about what's motivating her to take the stance that she is about this I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, there are moments in our series where um, she identifies specific things that that caused her to speak up. One of them, you know, some of them are like the specifics of um, the conflict around sex and gender, you know, um, you know, that she is concerned for um, the fairness, you know, fairness of um, in women's sports. She's concerned about young people and specifically, I mean, particularly young females medically transitioning as minors. Um, you know, and, and so there are some very specific concerns that she has, but I think one of the things that seemed to be a, a big part of her decision to speak up was the way that other women were being shut down. Um, and the fact that there was very little space, um, to be had in the public conversation, um, without women having to fear for their safety or their livelihoods, um, or even just like their public reputations. Um, and so, in other words, it's the the no debate aspect of the conversation. And since she has money, she has influence, she has, um, you know, would she suffer? Has she suffered as a result of speaking up on these issues? Absolutely. But it's it's suffering that she can withstand. So she's, I think she sees herself as, you know, she has the privilege, if you will, um, to do that. And so that, you know, I think she felt that she had to. It's so hilarious to me and kind of tragic i suppose that as i was walking around universal studios la in harry potter world a couple of years ago and it was just after jk rowling had been popped for a lot of this stuff and as i was walking around i realized that there was expansions going on and there was live demonstrations and they were pretending to do wizardry and all sorts of stuff and are we going to are you going to orlando there's a new ride that's opening up there in harry potter world over there And it made me realize that so much of the performative empathy and virtue signaling that you see, especially from the capitalistic class that own these kinds of corporations that would quite happily change the display photo of their Twitter profile to a rainbow colored flag during Pride Month, but won't shut down Harry Potter world because it makes them money. And fundamentally, this is the protection that J.K. Rowling is afforded, not only because she is rich, so she has the sort of monetary resources herself to give herself security and and, and safety and not be able to be cancelled, quote-unquote, in that regard, but all of these people need her. All of these people need her to keep on signing the checks that say, yep, that's another Universal Studios Orlando ride that's been opened up. This is part of the Harry Potter canon. Someone, some Harry Potter legal expert that she probably employs somewhere who's like this is within the prescribed rules or whatever it is and yeah it's it's a kind of like it does satisfy me in some regards the fact that you're seeing a woman retain so much ip and so much power that she isn't regardless of what she's saying and regardless of what you think about what she's saying it's really cool to see somebody who has who's unfuckwithable basically. Yeah. I mean, that, that concept in general is intriguing to me because I mean, you can kind of see it on both sides. You can see it as, like you said, unfuckwithable, like, because she has all this power 
very different kinds of power, a lot of different kinds of power. Um, and, but I think a lot of people who are in that same situation, those are all things that they can lose. And the sense, you know, the, the idea of loss aversion, right? It's, 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 you know, kind of central to, to human beings. You know, we, we don't want to lose the status and the influence and the power that we have. And so even people that you might consider, you know, they, they might be unfuckwithable maybe but they're not really willing because they're not willing to lose that they're not uh, willing to take so much those higher, risks. there's so much higher up the mountain there's further to fall right exactly exactly and so it was that's it is an interesting aspect of this story for sure because you know and asking her about that and specifically what was it that made her take that stand and you can hear it i mean in 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 the story that we tell and we go back and you hear that she you know suffered in a lot of ways that a lot of women suffer you know a lot of women are victims of domestic violence a lot of women are are survivors of um, sexual assault and things like that. And so you can hear the ways in which her past and her history um, influenced her decision to, to speak up on those issues. What does she think about people who say that she's ruined her legacy with the stance that she's taken? Well, I, this was something, it was, it was a line that really stood out to us. You know, she said, um, you know, you, you basically, you don't understand me and you never understood me because I do, she said, I do not walk around my house thinking about my legacy, whatever, I'll be dead. I care about now. I care about the living. So she's not thinking about those things. Um, she's thinking about how are women and girls being affected and children being affected by these um, these ideas in the here and now and and what responsibility does she have um, to, to speak up about it. Has she got personal security concerns? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's been a consistent um, thing for her since Harry Potter became huge, but it's definitely um, been also, um, you know, the last few years, it's been particularly bad. I, that was my impression, I should say. Yeah. I, the, one of the most interesting things that I learned was this, um, <clears throat> you could almost say it's a, a full circle that's occurred. There was a landmark case of Harry Potter books being removed from being out front in a library and they were kept behind the librarian's desk for children who were of the right age to read them, but they had to get parental consent to go and read them. Mm -hmm. Then there was a basically like a freedom of speech request that was made. And this particular case was one, which meant that children were allowed to access books that were of the age that was appropriate for them. And even if you were worried that they were being indoctrinated into the, the occult, it had to be out front and they were allowed to read it and the parents didn't need, they didn't need to jump through all of these extra hoops. However, it seems like full circle looking at some of the concerns that the right now has around LGBT books being placed in children's libraries, that some of the same legislation, the tangential similar parallels can be drawn between what was happening with Harry Potter books being permitted, that is now permitting LGBT books to be mm -hmm. in children's libraries. There's a Odd, yeah. odd sort of uh, horseshoe going on there. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. Um, you know, we interviewed these uh, lawyers who, on both sides of that case, um, both the lawyer who was arguing against those, um, you know, against those restrictions, and the uh, lawyer who was arguing for for them. Um, and it was really fascinating to hear them describe how that you know Harry Potter, those Harry Potter cases, you know, part of the legacy of those cases was that they were now protecting LGBT books, especially obviously in this current current moment. It 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 seems a little bit ironic. Yeah, it's strange. So you spent some time with historians and internet historians as well. What what did you learn there? Um we we were, you know, part of the story that we were trying to tell is kind of how how the internet became this, you know, kind of much more judgmental, cruel place. Because 
you know, and I, I also interviewed a lot of people, you know, those interviews didn't all make it into the series um, because we, we did so many of them and, they, you know, many of them were incredibly fascinating. And, but one of the things that I think was very sad to me as I was kind of going through all of this is, is how the kind of internet that existed, you know, in the 2000s um, and that was a place I mean, like it was for me. I was again essentially a member of a of a cult. I had been born and raised into this environment that was very, um, you know, we saw it's this very us versus them environment. We saw outsiders as evil, and they were hellbound, and I couldn't trust them. And I was able to form these communities on on Twitter. And I'm, I, I'm my experience was typical, I think, of a lot of people who did not have those kind of, um, you know, weren't able to make those kind of connections in their physical space. Um, and it's kind of very sad to see the way that the internet has changed um, over the past, especially the last decade or so. Um, so we went through in episode three of our series um, to kind of track how those changes took place over time. Um, and and essentially, we, we ended up talking about these two, we zeroed in on these two um, forums, um, 4chan on, on the one hand and then Tumblr on the other. And, and what you see, I mean, Angela Nagel is one of the women, um, you know, she's one of the internet historians that I spoke with. Um, and she was basically, she used those two as exemplars. Um, you know, 4chan is more male, um, more right-leaning, more kind of, you know, chaos. Um, and then Tumblr, like, um, leans more female, you know, both young, um, and, and kind of, I don't know if virtue signaling is quite the right term there, but kind of like very, you know, trigger warnings and safe spaces and things like that. Like we're, we're um, kind of ascendant there. Um, and you seeing the, the interplay within these communities and then also between them, um, you know, it's part of, uh, it, it partly explains how those things came to be. Um, if that makes sense. What role do both of these play in the story of how we get here? Um, so with Tumblr, like that was really the one that J.K. Rowling described as being something that she um, she was very interested. She said she was very interested in the use of the word identify. And Tumblr was a place where people could go and play with identity. Um, and you know, as I said, you know, they this whole kind of sensitivity culture where you know you're trying to be very careful in the way that you talk to and about. Um, you know, yourself and other people, you can play around with identity. So this is where, you know, like, I think it was like 70 some different genders or something. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, we didn't see a lot of those things until it became like a news, an, a news clip, right? Talking about the way that Facebook was, was um, uh, having those things. So it became this, this news clip, right? Facebook is introducing, you know, 70 some gender identities, and you could, you could, you know, choose whatever you, um, and so, but, but again, there, there were many aspects of Tumblr. Like I think one of the, one of the big ones too was there was this blog called, um, or this account called your fave is problematic. And it's kind of it embodies and exemplifies this, this trend that I think again, really took hold about a decade ago. And it's essentially you are showing your righteousness by pointing out others unrighteousness. So um, somebody, you know, they're, they're digging through your old tweets. They're looking at all of, um, all of your behavior, like trying to find the thing that shows that you are a bad person. And because I, you know, I, I can identify those things that makes me a good person. Um, and so, you know, this, there, there's, it's so funny. Cause like, as I'm describing some of these phenomena, like this was absolutely representative of my experience at Westboro, 
we were constantly scouring um, the news and the media, like looking for things that we that that showed that other people were bad and wrong and going to hell. And it we saw it as our duty. Like this was this was again a way to show that we were on the right side. Um, and so I I don't you know see any of these things as you know I, I'm not trying to like condemn people for engaging these kinds of behaviors. I think I, I understand and and can see where it's coming from, and, and even that it's coming from an attempt to you know be a good person yourself. Um, and yet in the prosecution of those, um, of those ideas and, and trying to tear down other people, you know, there, there's this amazing line from one of the contributors to the show, Natalie Wynn, where she says, um, you're, you're trashing people, but you feel like you're crusading. And I think that's very much representative of, of, you know, this aspect of, of internet culture that I think has made things so much uglier and, certainly less pleasant. Mm, that righteous retribution. I think J.K. Rowling brings up as well that this is a central theme within some of the books, that some of the most atrocious things that have been committed throughout all of human history have been done by people that were thinking that they were the good guys. Very Absolutely. few people actually do bad things in full knowledge of the fact that they're the baddies. There's that um, famous sketch from a, a British sketch show where it's two Nazis and they're talking to each other and they turn toward the end and they say, hang on, are we the bad guys? And it's just that sort of, they realize, oh my God, maybe we're on the other side and then they cast it off and then they realize it's not. Okay, so. And I think, I mean, to me, that that is a very hopeful thing because when be, the fact that, cause like, to my mind, I mean, I think it's, it's, unless you are a literal psychopath or sociopath, most people like really think that they are doing the right thing. And the fact that their intentions are good to me like I said, is a hopeful thing because it means there's something that you can tap into. Like if you can help them, you know, reframe the situation or in introduce, you know, the the kind of complicating factors and, you know, alternate perspectives, there's there's hope for change and improvement. How is it that one account on Tumblr and even Tumblr itself, I don't know how many users were on that social media platform, but I wasn't. No one that I know was much. Mm -hmm. That might be because I didn't have many girlfriends like when I was younger. How, how can that be sufficiently influential as to move culture a decade later? Um, so the way that it was described in the show by the but and it was the really interesting thing was, you know, as we as we were interviewing these people, and all three of them, all three of these internet historians were telling the exact same story, which is you know, these these kind of um, norms were taking hold on places like Tumblr. Um, but it was when they migrated from Tumblr to Twitter, which again, another amazing line from Natalie Wynn in that show. Um, she says, Twitter is politics, full stop. And like, so it is when, you, when, when these norms migrate to a place where there's a lot more users and a lot more, you know, people like influential people, people in the media, journalists, politicians, um, that's when it really takes off and becomes kind of ascendant in culture much more broadly. What's the role that 4chan plays? 4chan, so the way that Angela Nagel described it, she's essentially saying, like, when you have these two groups, um, so you have, there's the interplay within the group, right, where that kind of like pushes people to double down and become more and more extreme within their group. And then it becomes like um, this feedback cycle between the groups. So in seeing the extreme nature, you know, and, and especially like, so you have um, extreme sensitivity on Tumblr and extreme 
anti-sensitivity on 4chan, seeing the, what is happening on the other site and, and the extreme nature of it in your eyes, um, it causes you to think that, I mean, it helps you, uh, kind of pushes you into this idea that your political, it helps persuade you that your political project is necessary, is how she put it. And so, again, being among all these people who are um, confirming your values and then seeing that what, what's happening on the other side is, is does that make sense? It's like, it's, okay. Well, it, creates a, it creates like a recursive antagonistic feedback loop, right? Exactly, exactly. And then when you roll into it, trolls who use pose law to basically ruin the entire game, mm-hmm. you know, the number of trends that have come out of Fortune. I'm actually friends with who was, he no longer is, but the only guy that was a public moderator of 4chan and um yeah he's got a few interesting stories and uh yeah it's just it's it's such a a hydra head to even try and get that to work one of the interesting things that i kept on thinking about and and you touched on it with uh, how many people became friends and probably got married because uh they bonded when they were kids or uh, late adolescence over the harry potter books there's such a difference between whatever 25 years ago when the harry potter books came out and the internet was burgeoning and the story that we're talking about now, which is much more familiar to everyone that's listening, which is no longer about this sort of nostalgia for the internet of making friends, but it's the internet of making enemies now. Mm-hmm. And um, again, that trajectory, which I think a lot of people who are you know millennials will be able to feel because they would mm-hmm. have remembered what life was like before them. They would have remembered what life was like maybe during the, you could call it the brief golden years of the internet. Mm-hmm. And then the very quick pivot into whatever the world is that we're in now. Yeah. It's defining, it's like we used to define ourselves by what we were for. And now on the internet, we are defining ourselves by what we are against. And I think that's, again, part of the interplay between seeing, you know, each each side seeing what's happening on the other, on the other platforms. You've got this great quote, uh, the language of public life has lost the character of generosity. That yes. Um, that's actually, it's not my quote, I should say. That's my, um, one of my favorite authors, Marilyn Robinson. Um, and I just, I was reading something, um, something of hers. And when I saw that quote, I was like, that is, it's the understatement of the century, but it is that the loss of the ability to recognize that other people are human beings who are also on a journey. Like we recognize that about ourselves, you know, our, we kind of are able to recognize that, you know, we are not who we were yesterday and the, the ways that we screwed up in the past, you know, we can, we can learn better. We can do better. We feel that hope for ourselves. Um, but, again, that the language of public life has lost the character of generosity. Like we, we feel like we have to judge people, you know, based on who they are right now. And the the sense that, that there is no hope for them. And, you know, like that, again, to me, that, that loss is, um, we've lost something real and valuable and good. You know, the, the epigraph of my book is this line from the great Gatsby that um, goes, reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. And to me, that is just the encapsulation of this idea of grace, right? That the willingness to see other people as being on a journey and that there, there's hope for them to grow and change. We have that same hope for ourselves and, and that we can contribute to their lives and their understanding of the world in a way that, that could actually um, help them. So again, the loss of that generosity, I think, is part of what leads to this like incredibly judgmental, condemnatory um, mindset that I, I recognize so well from my upbringing. Continuing to track the journey or the the um, propagation, I suppose, of this this worldview, it seems like the impositions on language have really been a flashpoint for a lot of this stuff. That that 
moment when language became, uh, there were proposals to change it, the, the accusations that it was being perverted or it was being miscarried. That seems to have been something that, why, why do you think that it, why is, why is language been such a important ground zero for this conversation? Do you mean specifically in sex and gender? Yes. Because we're, because it's representing like what, how, how we see reality, right? Like that's, that's the whole point. Like, can we talk in a way, can we communicate in a way that we can, I mean, so this is why, like, just imagine for a second, like, I think we've all seen the video clips of politicians who are fighting over the idea, like whether, whether men can get pregnant. And when these people are having these public battles, you know, and, you know, you have the, generally it is the Republicans who are saying men cannot get pregnant. And then you have, you know, some, um, somebody, generally a Democrat saying men can definitely get pregnant. Nobody in this conversation, I think nobody is confused about whether like that it is females who are getting pregnant, but the battle is over the language, right? And, and like what we are willing to say, whether we're willing to make these changes and make these accommodations for this very small minority of people. Um, and for some people, like, it, again, it feels like so much is at stake on both sides. They think we are being asked to change or to, to alter our understanding and our ability to talk about reality. Like that's, that's <clears throat> almost, excuse me, that's almost exactly what Rowling you know, is saying in episode seven, when, when we talk about that, this question. Um, and, and then on the other side, again, it feels like, I'm trying to think, like, what, what, like, cause maybe a succinct way of putting it is like, one side thinks this is such a small change that we're asking. And it's not, it's not that like, why, why is this a problem? Why can't you just alter this and accommodate these people? Um, it is just the kind and right thing to do. And the other side is saying, we have to be able to talk about reality. We have to be able to say clearly what is happening, you know, and and we shouldn't alter, we shouldn't have to alter um, what we, how we understand the truth and reality. And so, yeah, it, it it's, it's like, it's a very fr kind of frustrating place to be, I think, for people because one side is saying it's not that big of a deal. Just, you know, like you can think about it, like think about like, um, misgendering or something like like misgendering it's not that big of a deal like why 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 do you take this as such a huge thing and they're asking it's not that big of a thing why can't you just do it you understand so like they both are kind of like minimizing the the negativity like experienced by the other side um and that's again it's a very it's a very hard place to be this has been propagated a lot by journalists both traditional media and new media as well what did the journalists that you spoke to contribute to this discussion? What did they have to say about why this had taken hold so much? Um, I mean, I think one of my really um, most interesting conversations I had was with this journalist, Michelle Goldberg, who's been covering this for a long time. I mean, more than a decade, I think, at this point. Um, and, you know, the way that she described it was essentially that, again, everybody, everybody, both sides, both the, you know, trans people and you know, the quote unquote turfs, right? Like JK Rowling, um, you know, feel very embattled. Like these are people um, who, who feel like so much is at stake, right? Um, and, and again, when that is the case, like it's very hard for people to let go of their pain long enough to hear what the other side is experiencing. Um, and because I think a lot of people have opted out of the conversation, 
um, because of how toxic it is, um, what you're left with is kind of the people who feel the strongest on both sides um, and who have taken kind of the hardest lines in the most extreme positions um, that like those are the people who those are the voices that you hear. And again, that feedback cycle is incredibly destructive. It feedback feeds back in a very strange way as well that if there is uh, an increasing sensitivity on both sides to anybody who seems to cede ground to the other as being accused of being whatever or whatever, that causes fewer and fewer people who aren't 100% absolutely ardent about their view to wade into the topic. Because unless you're unbelievably compelled to do it, why would you bother to step foot into this absolute cesspool, which creates an incentive to push this out only to the absolute edges. It's only the people who are the most ardently for or the most ardently against that are going to step into this conversation. Because get fucked if you think that the moderate person's going to do it because they're just going to get caught in a ton of crossfire. Yeah, and no, exactly. And that it is that exact, that's absolutely part of the dynamic that led me to write that letter to JK Rowling. Like there, there has to be a way of articulating these things and, and, and talking to people and hearing what they actually believe. And again, not the most extreme versions of, of all these positions. Cause that's, you know, you're, you essentially get straw, straw men just over and over again. Um, and, and yeah, that you, we, you hear so many people articulate that exact thing. Why would I step into this when the stakes are very high? It doesn't seem like it affects me personally. And, and there, there is no upside here. There is no upside. Is, is a- that's, that's a good, a, an interesting question. Why has this become such a huge issue that is uh, spread across corporations, news commentators, reactionary talking heads, all of that stuff, when it's only an issue that affects 1% of the population, something like that? It's a very small number of people compared with this huge, huge amount of attention that's being given to it. What's going on? I mean, I think it's it's because it's become a moral flashpoint. Like it is a discerner. Like, are you on the right side or are you on the wrong side? Um, and when I think when that is the case, and especially, you know, one of the um, one of the things that's come up a lot is essentially with LGBT rights. You know, when same sex marriage was one in in this country, um, you know, it's like all these organizations essentially, you know, that were that were existing to um, try to ensure that 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 we we got that right one in this country um they still exist and it like lgbt so the t part of it right like the trans rights essentially was like then the next frontier people saw it as the next frontier like this is just this kind of besieged minority and we need to take care of these people um and so I think because people saw that as the natural extensions is the next uh battle um you know it 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 has become the flashpoint. Is the, thing- tra- is the trans rights movement any different to the gay rights movement? Well, that's I mean, this is what people are having these kind of major battles over at this point because there are people who say no, absolutely not. It is the same, the same kind of persecution, the same kinds of arguments are being made against trans people as were made against gay people and and bisexual people. Um, and but then you have people on the other, other side who are saying no this is actually fundamentally different and in fact this was actually one of the um complicating factors um that ultimately led me to um you know take on this project because you know i'm also not immune to the kind of um the fear you know i mean ultimately um when i first went down this path my my friend andy mills was the one who um who called me with his idea for this show a couple of years ago 
And, you know, I was really interested. I immediately started, you know, researching um, and, you know, sending him all these things like, oh my gosh, you have to include this in the show. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, and then when he asked me to, um, to host, I, I definitely, I, I took a, a while <laughs> before I said yes. Um, and I spent that talking to, to trans people and to, um, but also, I mean, to gay and lesbian people. Um, and it was really fascinating to hear them describe, um, I, I should say not, not all of them, but they were, they were describing an element of homophobia in the trans rights movement, which is essentially if you are same sex attracted, um, if you are a lesbian and you're, um, excluding trans women from your dating pool, then you are transphobic and that there, there's something wrong with you. Um, and, you know, hearing these kinds of things from, um, gay and lesbian people in my life, um, and hearing kind of this, um, anguish, I would say, you know, essentially saying they had fought people like my family, me and my family for a very long time. Um, you know, who'd been telling them there's something wrong with you for being same sex attracted. And now they were getting it, you know, very similar, um, kinds of criticism from the progressive left. And there's it was something a, wrong with you being same sex attracted. There's still yeah. something wrong with you being same sex attracted. Yeah. Was, what's the t uh, genital fetishists, Genital right? fetishists. Exactly. I mean, and it's, you know, obviously like not all trans people feel that way or, or, or try to, you know, take those positions, but there are, you know, some who, who are. But again, th that's what was so fascinating. Like uh, the series is, you know, we have seven episodes. It's, it's, you know, like essentially, you know, about seven hours of material. Um, there was so much more. There are so many, like it is one of the most fascinating, incredibly rich topics. And the fact that so many people opt out of the conversation because of, um, oh, and I, I'm not, I don't just mean this from like, from a, a curiosity perspective. I mean, like real people's real lives are affected by, by the answers that we will eventually come to, um, you know, in these conversations around sex and gender. Um, and, and it's like, yeah, we, I, I'm still absolutely persuaded that we have to be able to have these conversations um, as calmly and kindly and civilly as possible. Because again, people do feel like so much is at stake, so many um, really important aspects of who they are and the way that they live their lives. What did the clinicians have to say? When it comes to clinicians, there's a lot of different, um, you know, kinds of opinions um, about it. I think one thing, though, that is clear from everybody that I spoke to, um, and that includes people like Dr. Marcy Bowers, who's the head of WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Um, you know, essentially all of them agree that we do not have enough information. There is not enough research. Um, Dr. Bowers told me that I think it was like 80% of the research that has been done with youth medical transition has been done in the past 10 years. So it's very recent. You know, a lot of these professional associations in other countries like uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland, um, the UK, actually, just in the past few days, um, you know, have really pulled back um, some of these treatments, things like puberty blockers. And now they essentially are not going to be using them outside of research contexts. So a lot is changing. Um, but I think the kinds of, you know, concerns that a lot of people had, including JK Rowling, um, you know, it, they're not completely unfounded. Absolutely not. Um, Did you read Time to Think by Hannah Barnes? I, I've read part of it, yes. And I have seen a lot of her and, and, and everything that she talks about, that is exactly the kind of thing that, um, that Rowling was worried about. And I think a lot of people who are concerned about youth gender transition. Um, I don't know if you've seen, um, you know, Helen Lewis actually had a, um, I interviewed her in the series. Um, she, she will actually be in the epilogue that'll be out. 
um, later this month. Um, you know, she, she wrote a thing for the Atlantic, a piece in the Atlantic, um, and essentially said neither the, um, you know, the attempts to compel, you know, you know, youth transition or to completely ban it. Neither of those things is the answer is essentially where she comes to. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really fascinating argument. Hannah was on the show and for the people that didn't see it, uh, she basically present, I, I couldn't believe how carefully she tread, which I thought was very impressive. It's super, super, super gentle. Anything where she was out over her skis, where there wasn't evidence she was, she was pushing back against. Um, but she basically said puberty blockers and the, the book's called time to think, because that's what puberty blockers were advertised as being that it just puts a pause mm-hmm. it's a pause on puberty, get rid of the blockers and then puberty will be- re-begin and everything ends up being the same. But it's an ironic title because it doesn't give you time to think. And there is an unbelievably high percentage of children who go on puberty blockers who end up essentially on a set of train tracks that results in gender reassignment surgery in their late teens. And, you know, there is an interesting question. Are these young children mentally disturbed because they're trans? Or are they trans because they're mentally disturbed? How many people that are suffering with autism spectrum disorder, uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder, with a number of other issues, are coping with them, especially as a girl? Because the increase is rapidly, rapidly occurring in F to M as opposed to M to F. I'm now a girl. I am being seen as a sexual object by my peers. I wasn't previously. My body's changing. This is scary. I don't know what's going on. I have uh, more than ever comparative uh, views of what femininity is supposed to be on the internet, whether that be hypersexualized or whether that be like inverse or uh, reverse mimesis, negative mimesis of being a tomboy. And maybe I don't fit into this. And maybe I've got autism spectrum disorder. So I'm already not very ladylike. And uh, maybe I'm just a boy. Or maybe I just want to take time. But that time to think, isn't time to think it's time on a set of train tracks that ends up with you getting into transitioning. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. And, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not in I the mean, UK anymore, but the gender identity thingy service at the Tavistock clinic yeah, didn't do a good job. Yeah. I mean, that's Dr. Erica Anderson, who I also interviewed for the show, you know, it, each of these things, it's, it's a very individualized, like we have to be able to look at and examine and have each of these, you know, young people, um, actually be examined and go through a, I think what you call it, um, a bio psychosocial profile, or I think that's what she called it. Um, and places like, you know, what were you know, the, the gender identity service at Tavistock um, were overwhelmed essentially with patients and not really following those protocols. Um, I think is, is, you know, one of the, one of the findings of the cast report. So, you know, in the absence of those things. But I mean, I should say though, too, I interviewed this wonderful um, trans boy named Noah who had top surgery as a 16-year-old. Um, I interviewed uh, him shortly after he turned 17. And um, he's an incredibly smart, emotionally intelligent. Like if you listen to that, like, you know, he is somebody who really deeply, like I, th- I, th- I think one, he definitely got care that was um, much better than kind of what was described at the Tavistock. Um, but also, again, just, just an incredibly smart and emotionally intelligent, like, you know, person who really wrestled with all of the, you know, potential consequences, you know, you know, thought about like, what if I eventually come to detransition? Um, and when I asked him about that, he basically said, if I eventually, you know, decide to detransition, 
I I will have lived to regret my transition. Like he basically was saying, if he had not transitioned, he would have committed suicide. So, you know, it's 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 an incredibly complicated um, you know, set of circumstances. And I I really feel for the parents who are trying to figure out like what is what is the best way forward. And it's an you also hear, you know, one of the criticisms that we got from people on the show is um, you know, why didn't we talk to a detransitioner? But then you also have, you know, people who wish we would have talked to somebody who was not allowed to transition as a minor, who didn't have the kind of, um, you know, a trans person who did not have the kind of support that Noah had from his parents. Um, and essentially were forced to go through what they describe as the wrong puberty. So, you know, a, tr- a trans girl who was forced through male puberty because they didn't get treatment and now as an adult has to kind of undo all of those things. And, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's a, it's a really complicated and, and um, it's a really complicated thing to try to figure out from a policy perspective, like what is, what is the right way? What is the right thing to do? And even more complicated from a publishing perspective on how to say these things without putting your foot on some sort of tripwire for one side or the other. Ultimately, I, I think when it comes to the conversation, which is, you know, th- there are a number of different layers to what you're talking about, the, the, the um, history of where this has come from, the implication for why it is happening, the experience of the people that are going through it, the consequences for society and for other groups who are infect- affected by the people who go through it, the conversation and why that's become so polarized. You know, it doesn't matter how terminally online you are, even if it's as much as me or you with regards to this kind of an issue, there are so many unseen holes in the floor that you can just stick your foot through. But Mm -hmm. you did spend a good bit of time on the show talking to critics of uh, JK Rowling, talking to activists from the LGBT movement, et cetera, et cetera. What did you learn from spending time with them? Because I think, at least as far as I can see, a lot of people are very familiar with the pushback, with the well-meaning pushback, especially uh, against these sorts of policies. It is pretty self-evident why biological men invading women's spaces, whether they be bathrooms or prisons or um, psych-, psych wards or hospitals or whatever, could cause complications downhill. Uh, what were your eyes open to when you spoke to critics of J.K. Rowling? Well, when I talked to Noah, I mean, Natalie and Noah are the two primary critics we actually featured in the show um, because I really felt like their um, their description, their ability to, I think, um, help people understand where they're coming from. Because, you, you again, on- online, you get a lot of this kind of um, very, it seems like hyperbolic, overstated, um, and you can really hear the pain, you know, frankly, from from people like Natalie and Noah. Um, they don't, and, and again, Noah especially, he basically was saying he didn't want J.K. Rowling to not express her um, her opinions, her concerns over all the things that we just described. The youth, you know, uh, youth medical transition, you know, children transitioning too young before they have a, a real ability to um, understand the, the permanent, in, in many cases, changes that they are making to their bodies. Um, so it's not that they, you know, think that her they they basically think that she's not engaging in good faith that's what that's what natalie said um and then with noah again basically saying the story that is told because she has such a massive platform and because she has been um you know the victim of the this kind of again overstated kind of hyperbolic um 
um, the threats and things that she has received have been highly publicized. Um, and basically she was saying, I mean, um, sorry, basically Noah was saying that, that those things are true and they're real, but they essentially take the focus off of the fact that trans people are highly marginalized. They are often excluded from society. They are treated like outcasts in many situations. Um, many people don't have, again, Noah's, um, the support that Noah has from, from his family, um, from his parents, you know, the, you know, as, you know, Natalie was saying, these people are, you know, cast out by their families, cast out by society, targeted by the government, you know, their, their healthcare being, um, banned and, and in some cases criminalized. Um, the, the fact that rolling essentially takes up so much air in that conversation, um, even though the things that are being said about her are true, they are essentially giving the v- a view of something that is um, of the situation that is false. Does that make sense? Because the because the scale is not is not fairly. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm I'm thinking about how even within that, even within J.K. Rowling's contribution to this conversation, even that's multi layered, right? So, so her concern about uh, some of the extreme and very dangerous uh, implications of self-ID of men in women's spaces, biological men in women's spaces, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That captures a portion of the conversation, which I'm going to guess that uh, ContraPoints uh, and and Noah um, don't, you know, a biological man who hasn't gone through, who doesn't have gender dysphoria, who hasn't decided that they're going to try and make any effort to transition, something tells me that neither of them would say yes to that too, because that makes their own case for legitimate trans people weaker. Or at least it's it's not going to be the first thing that they're going to charge out of the gates trying to get. They're going to try and help people that they think are genuinely suffering and could do with some treatments that are going to assist them. But because that's what J.K. Rowling has kind of captured as part of the conversation. And then the backlash to J.K. Rowling, which has been from the more militant parts of the LGBT movement, also captures and jades both sides. It riles up the opposition and says, see, I thought you were supposed to be for tolerance and inclusion. You, you, this is complete rank hypocrisy. You're evidently, you evidently don't care about this thing. And then that badmouths the people on their own side because they think, no, no, they don't represent us. And yeah, it, it's the ever escalating uh, echo chamber incentive causes people on both sides to misrepresent both their own and each other's. And it's mm-hmm. that sort of recursive antagonism that ever, ever mm-hmm. worsens and escalates. Yeah. I mean, and again, this is exactly, exactly the kind of situation that I was seeing when I wrote that letter to Rowling. Like there, there just has to be a better way. And I, I, I really think that we, you know, you described all the landmines that it's very easy to step in completely unwittingly just based on the terminology that you use and so i mean it's 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 really wild actually how much time we spend trying to get the language so that it is intelligible right because even for people like to say trans women a lot of people even you know like i would say like lefty people that i know um you say trans woman and they they would say like oh is that a man who wants to be a woman or a woman who wants to be a man like i mean it, it is it is very hard to parse a lot of this language because sex and gender are so kind of central to our understanding of the world. And so, so yeah, like trying to figure out exactly how to speak in such a way that you are intelligible, um, but also not showing that you are, you know, have your thumb on the scale for one side or, or the other. It is, it is quite, and this is again, one of the many reasons that many people opt out entirely. Did 
ContraPoints do that video with the same title before or after you spoke to them? After, yeah. How do you feel about that video? I mean, I am really, um, I really wish um, I could have talked to Natalie again because I really, really like Natalie. Um, I watched that video that she made, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Um, and I mean, honestly, for f- several weeks beforehand, she was teasing that she was working on a video. And I I was really, um, I was like, oh God, it's going to be, it's going to be about us. And I, you know, I mean, I will say though, like, as I watched the video, there was, there were a lot of things that I was, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, follow, um, follow her argument and try to understand where she's coming from. And, and, you know, obviously I hate the fact that she regrets talking to us. Cause I think we, we really, so many people see episode six that features her so heavily. Um, like that was really challenging. I think for a lot of people who thought they were just, you know, essentially unquestioningly on JK Rowling's side. Um, and the kind of, um, you know, she, she just, I think represented herself really, really well in that conversation. Um, and it was really powerful. Um, but when I was watching the video that she made after the fact, um, you know, there, there were several things that really stuck out to me and I'll just like go into one of them maybe right now. Um, she just was describing this, um, anti-gay activist named Anita Bryant in the video. And what she said was Anita Bryant, like she's basically attacking my, you know, my view that as I was saying earlier, that, that having civil conversation, open dialogue with people who think differently than you, like that is the way forward to my mind. And I think it is the most effective way to change hearts and minds and find a way forward when we live in a pluralistic society. So that's that's the idea of mine um, that I think that she's attacking in this part of the video. And one of the things that she said was, J.K. Rowling, I'm sorry, she said, Anita Bryant didn't need to be persuaded. She needed to be defeated. And that really stuck with me because I was thinking like, but what does that mean? What does it mean for Anita Bryant to be defeated? To, I mean, I think what it means is that her for, it's for her ideas to be defeated, right? And what does that mean? It means that people are persuaded that her ideas are wrong. So it still comes down to persuasion. We still have to engage with these ideas, particularly ones, as I was saying earlier, particularly these ones that are so uh, that that are so mainstream that so many people share. And if we don't engage with those ideas, I don't know how how, how will she win. I guess is my question. And the really interesting thing is that Natalie herself says this in the series. Realistically, that is the trajectory. Like how, you know, same-sex marriage was won because gay people came out to their family and friends and said, you know, we are not groomers. We're not trying to like, you know, indoctrinate your children. We're not trying to, you know, turn them gay. Like we're just people who happen to love people of the same sex. So yeah, that was one of the things for me watching Natalie's video. It's like, I, I actually don't think that we are so much at odds when it comes to um, exactly how and how to move forward from all of this. I wonder whether or how much of that could have been uh, silenced, would have been like defeated is an, another way to have said that would have just been uh, not given a platform at all. Um, I don't know. I, the. the I, I understand why it she can... wasn't advocating that in the series though. I mean, or sorry, she wasn't advocating that in the video though. She was I advocating. I just don't understand how yeah. you square the circle of allowing somebody to speak, but also saying that it was wrong to let them speak. Like if defeated means ideas defeated, but you can't hear the ideas, how are you supposed to defeat them? Right. I mean, 
again, in this, in her video, she was describing a lot of like particular things that um, gay activists, gay and lesbian activists did in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, they put Anita Bryant's face on toilet paper and they made fun of her. And they, you know, she kept going back to this moment where somebody smashed a banana cream pie into Anita Bryant's face during this like live TV interview or whatever. And she keeps going to that moment, going back to that moment. And I'm just thinking, it's like she's saying that I, like my position is never make fun of people. Never, you know, you should never, you know, show that you are angry, disgusted. Now, I never said any of those things. What I said was that I think that the most compelling, the most effective way to create change is to engage, to really engage with the ideas, right? Civil conversation that makes, where people feel like their ideas are being heard and addressed. Um, again, like this is something that completely changed the trajectory of my life. And I was absolutely, I was so hardcore. I mean, I, I was raised in it from the age of five. And in spite of myself and in spite of every intention that I had of, you know, preaching this, this message and, and certainly my, I was never going to change my mind about any of it. Um, and in spite of all those things, the power of civil conversation, again, changed the course of my life. And it meant that I lost my family. I mean, I, I, I left, you know, I left everything that I and everyone that I knew and loved as a result of those conversations. Um, and I don't think that I am unique. I think that when people, when you, when you engage with what they actually believe and actually, um, you know, treat them like a human being, it, it, I, I don't think that the way that I responded was, like I said, I don't think that was unique. I think I responded in a very human way to people who treated me like a human being. I've got a quote from a friend here that says, when punishment for what people say becomes widespread, people stop saying what they really think and instead say whatever is needed to thrive in the social environment. Thus, limits on speech become limits on sincerity. And, you know, it's the reason that censorship doesn't work fundamentally, that you don't actually change people's minds. You just drive those opinions underground. And yeah. yeah, it's got to the stage now where two things, perhaps. One being that we must win at any cost, whichever side you are from, suggests that uh, if you can create an asymmetric battlefield by censoring the other side whilst allowing yours, that gives you uh, a particular advantage. And the other one being that there is sort of a generalized risk aversion at the moment Anyway, three out of 10 Gen Zers uh, support the installation of cameras inside the home to surveil for wrongdoing. That just came oh, out from wow. the Cato Institute last week, which, again, if you have got into a routine of giving up your privacy on the internet in return for access to Google or YouTube or whatever, then what, what really is the difference between doing that in the online world and doing that in real life. It's not all that different, right? The, the, the lines begin to get blurred for the person that's been uh, natively online since the age of whenever they can remember being alive. So I wonder whether protecting people from bad opinions, protecting people from dangerous ideas, which I'm sure both sides you know, use during this discussion, I wonder whether that contributes a little bit to you know, the ideas should be defeated. Uh, it's a strange one. I, I didn't realize that you didn't know that that video was going to come out until after you guys had spoken and all the rest of it. That must have been, yeah, difficult. 
Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I really like Natalie. Um, and I think, you know, I had watched, you know, some of her videos and I, I mean, I learned, I mean, her cancel culture video, like he, she even described like this, um, witch hunt impulse. And I, I think there's a lot of things that she, that she says, but, you know, I, I also recognize, you know, she, she disavowed the series, um, even before the video, like basically, you know, from the very, before a single episode actually had, had come out. Uh, yeah. Before the video, but also before you had released anything. Yes, exactly. But presumably at that time, all that was known about what you were going to publish was what you had spoken about during your conversation. But did you, during the conversation, did you think like it had gone badly? Did, or no, I mean, the... no, I mean, like it was, it was quite long. I mean, like, this was like, I think it was like a right shortly before I, I gave birth. <laughs> I think it was, there was a, In little... a fever dream. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, like, like I said, I, I, I really like her. I thought it was a really good conversation. It was really interesting. And, um, and, and I was really, I was really grateful. And I mean, I, I remain grateful because I think her in the, the inclusion of her voice in the series, um, is such a, um, it is exactly the kind of thing that I think is, is missing so much. Like it's a very thoughtful, considered critique, not again, this kind of hyperbolic, um, very loud or threatening, um, and she wasn't, you know, attempt attempting to to shut down the conversation, well, which I think that, is what. Given that she's disavowed it after it happened, does that change your opinion at all? Um, I, it's really funny because, like, I, I, I'm, I've really tried hard to understand where she's coming from, and I think, but I, I do think part of part of it is the dynamic that you just described, and actually, she described um, in the series, you know, this this sense of a lot of trans people, you know, rely on other trans people for support. And I think, I think she saw that people in her community saw our show, even, or, you know, even before, again, even before a single episode had aired, um, as like, they, they knew what the show was going to say. They were sure that it wasn't going to be, you know, what they, what they wanted. Um, and so it became a target immediately. And so I think, you know, maybe in part she was responding to, to that. I think in part she was probably responding to a, an understandable misreading of the title, but again, I, I really feel like I actually don't think we are that far off, actually. When you know, even you know, watching that video, I, I yeah, I, I still really like her. I still, you know, really disagree with some of the points that she made there. But, you know, I, I think again, we live in a pluralistic society. I'm very glad that she has the ability to describe her disagreement and then that I can respond. It seems to me from the conversations I've heard with you previously and today and the show as well that you're doing an awful lot of work, almost twisting yourself inside out in a desperate attempt to be as unbiased as you can, to be able to be both sides, to be able to do all of these things, despite the fact that nobody, everyone can agree on, it's not that easy to step through this minefield without triggering one of the tripwires on either side, right? So yeah. the amount of effort that you've had to go through, I don't know, you, the same with Hannah Barnes. Hannah Barnes was like almost offensively delicate yeah. with the way that she spoke when she yeah. came on the show. It was outrageous how softly she was treading. We, we The evidence would suggest it seems as so and so on. So I don't know. I mean, you know, spent enough time watching stuff on the internet to know when somebody has an ulterior motive and it doesn't seem to me like you or, or her do. And um, especially given the background that you're coming from, which is open and honest communication on the internet saved you and brought you into a life which you now very much appreciate and value um and imagine the kind of knots they taught i mean 
like Westboro by almost any view of what we were doing at the church, you know, people saw us as inhumanly cruel and just, just absolutely monstrous essentially. And the people who took the time in spite of all of that, sometimes I go back and look at old videos of myself and you should see the way I used to communicate. Uh, I mean, just the kind of just the condescension and the arrogance and just the, the, again, horribly cruel things that I would say. The fact that people were able to look past that and recognize that I was a human being who was the product of my upbringing um, and their willingness to, you know, as you said, tie themselves in knots to try to to try to show me that kind of grace. I mean, like I, I absolutely feel an obligation to to do that as much as possible. I mean, like the show could have been a, a, a lot of different things, but really, I think what it is an attempt to do is to really understand where people are coming from in as good faith as possible. Because again, unless people really feel heard and understood, um. I don't, I don't think the, the the willingness to listen is obviously a lot less. Um, but then also like there's just, you, you have to be able to wrestle with the very best arguments on the other side. Um, and if you're going to find a way forward, and that's really what I, I hope ultimately this is one step down that path. How much backlash have you faced since it's come out? Um, some, but mo- honestly, much less than I anticipated. Like when we started this two years ago, I I was pretty terrified that <laughs> how how that was going to go, um, but I mean, honestly, Natalie's criticism is is the one that that like I think hurts the most um, because, like I said, I, I we really really tried to do um, justice to her position, um, and I I think we succeeded again based on based on the um, the kind of responses we got from a lot of people, um, so it, it hasn't been that bad actually, um, and it's actually been pretty incredible to hear from a lot of people, including a lot of trans people who, who, um, who see the series as, as a real attempt at being even handed a real attempt at helping people understand each other. Um, and I mean, honestly, like it's one of the earliest responses I got was from, um, an employee at a, at a diversity center who was like, Oh my God, like we, we need this conversation so badly. And like kind of essentially again, seeing it, I don't think we weren't trying to litigate the issues in this series. I don't think I'm the person to do that. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm qualified to do that. Um, but e- again, even even that, like the willingness of people to listen, to really hear the other side, and to wrestle with the the best versions of their arguments instead of these straw men that t- seem to come up so much on social media. Um, I don't know. I, I feel a lot of hope. A lot of hope. What do you think about what is a woman? Matt Walsh's documentary because they released that on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and I saw online that that is now potentially the most watched documentary in human history because of how much it got signal boosted in the space of four days which is insane uh but have you did you speak to anybody about that have you you know you're somebody that is absolutely knee-deep in this conversation doing something that's not like ridiculously dissimilar finding out what's going on broadly asking questions although maybe with less of an agenda than uh matt walsh had what what did you learn from people about that or what what have your reflections been on how that contributes to the conversation um it's been a while since i saw it i mean there were definitely some moments i think some clips that that um were on this was like a year ago i honestly haven't been i was um um but 
yeah, I mean, I, I remember, um, I remember seeing those clips about a year ago. I think actually when I was flying home from that first set of interviews with J.K. Rowling, um, and you know, it, I think so. It's really interesting for you know he, he's asking them to articulate their worldview, and in some ways, some of it seems like it can be pretty incomprehensible for, especially for the uninitiated. I think, and you know, you can win cheap points that way, but I think again, for me, we you know we could have done something like that. We could have, but the point isn't to make it harder to understand. It's again, to present the very best versions of their, of their arguments and what they're trying to achieve and, and how they understand the world and make that comprehensible to the other side. If you're only talking to people who already agree with you, there will be no progress. And so, I, I mean, I just... I understand where he was coming from. I do think he was mostly talking to his own side. Um, and, you know, again, I, I understand, I think, why he would do something like that. But I, it's not the kind of thing that I want to engage in because I, I really do aim for mutual comprehension instead of mutual antagonism. What do you think the future of this discussion has in store? You might not have a crystal ball and divinity is apparently some form of occult witchcraft in any case. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think is going to happen? Does the volume get turned up, get, get turned down? I think it's, I, I, like I said, I, I do feel a lot of hope. I think, I mean, even over the past few months, there's been quite a bit of change. There's, I think, more, I mean, I don't think it's going to be like a, a straightforward trajectory where everything suddenly gets better and people are able to understand each other and and are, you know, suddenly, you know, willing and able to talk to each other. But I, I, I do see already a change in the public conversation and the ability to say more honestly what you actually think. I think fewer people are opting out. I still think it's probably too many um, are self-censoring, but I, I I do hear more people willing to ask the questions in good faith um, and to really try to engage. Um, and again, for me, that represents hope because that's I do believe that that is the way forward. Have you spoken to JK since the series came out? Um, I actually have not, but I'm I will be interested to hear what she thinks. I, I do know that she hates the sound of her own voice, so I don't know. She might have uh, skipped all of the episodes, <laughs> the, bit, the bits that have got her in. Yeah. We'll see. Megan Feltz-Roper, ladies and gentlemen, I really appreciate the work that you've done. It's been an incredibly effortful task to do and probably one that largely carried an awful lot of personal risk. So I very much appreciate the fact that you decided to step into this. If people want to keep up to date and check out more stuff, where should they go? And when's the epilogue out? Um, I think the epilogue should be out in a couple of weeks. Um, it's taken a little longer than than I expected because I did finally take maternity leave after my my baby was born, <laughs> which is just nice. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Keep up with me. Um, I'm on Twitter. I, I I've actually been, yeah. Oh my gosh, what, what do I even say? What do I say, Chris? <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter at Megan Phelps and on Instagram at Megan Marie.